Um, Open your Bibles to Psalm 42. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, his response was interesting. He didn't give them a lecture on prayer. He gave them a prayer. He said, when you pray, say this. And he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And I think the Psalms function in a similar way. Um, They teach us how to pray not by explaining prayer, but by offering us 150 model prayers. And so the best way to learn from the Psalms is not to study them in an academic way, but to pray them. Well, that being the case, kind of a challenge to preach on the Psalms because we can dissect a Psalm and pick it apart and talk about the Hebrew words and actually miss the whole point. So I want to, what I want to try to do this morning is not so much analyze this psalm, but think about how we can pray it. And I want to start by um, suggesting a couple um, qualities of the psalms that I think makes them prayable, if that's a word. Um, first of all, the psalms are elusive, elusive with an A. They allude to other parts of the Bible. So, um, in the Middle Ages, before the printing press was invented, only the very wealthy could afford to have a complete hand-copied Bible. But if you were middle class, maybe you could afford to have one book of the Bible copied. If you were limited to one book of the Bible, which one would you choose? For uh, many Christians in the Middle Ages, they settled for the Psalter, the book of Psalms. And I think it was a good choice. Martin Luther calls the Psalms a little Bible. Because he felt like in the Psalms, we have the entire Bible in condensed poetic form. In our Psalm this morning, we'll see that the language alludes to Job and to Jonah and to Jesus. And so when we pray the Psalms, it has a way of channeling our thoughts in all of these biblical directions. So the the Psalms are elusive. The Psalms are also evocative in the sense that they evoke images and feelings. Um, You know, the Psalms really deal with some deep, abstract ideas, but they put it in this kind of simple, earthy language that makes it more accessible for us. In in our Psalm this morning, we're going to see three main images or feelings evoked. Thirst, exile, and drowning. And we'll talk more about those as we go through. But it's this evocative nature of the Psalms that makes them so prayable. As we pray, we can visualize. Uh, we can feel what we're praying for. So it becomes more than just words on a page. So as we read the psalm, think about what it's alluding to and what it's evoking. Okay, Psalm 42. I feel like I should sort of apologize in advance for this sermon. Um, I was hoping to preach on one of the psalms of praise, something upbeat. Um, Because I I feel like, since my daughter passed away, I've been sharing some of my grief in every sermon. And that's been very helpful for me. But I realize that's probably hard to hear too often. And so, yeah, I was hoping to talk about joy or praise and then I got the assignment to preach on a psalm of lament. Uh, 
And I, and I don't know how to do this without bringing my own personal experience in. So bear with me. Um, you probably didn't come to church hoping to hear a, a psalm of lament. <laughs> Thank you, sister. So, um, but at least, look, the, the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes says this. It's better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. That's just the sort of positive message you want to hear on your day off, isn't it? I was thinking we ought to put that verse on the sign out by Luther Road. That would uh, really bring the crowds in. I heard Tim Keller preach a sermon on Psalm 88, which is probably the bleakest psalm of lament in the Bible. And he asked the question, why is this in the Bible? And to answer the question, he quoted... The classic movie, The Princess Bride, where the, the princess says to Wesley in her exasperation, you mock my pain. To which Wesley replies, life is pain, Highness, and anyone who tells you differently is selling something. You know, for just a silly comedy, that's pretty good dialogue. And so why are the Psalms of Lament in the Bible because God's not selling something. See, God wants to give us something. That's what the gospel is all about. But he's not selling something. The Bible is brutally honest about the pain that we often endure. And because it's honest, we can trust it when it offers us hope. So Psalm 42, let's pick it up in verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. What does that language evoke? It evokes the feeling of thirst, right? The psalmist is thirsty for God. When I think of a deer, I naturally think of a local deer, a Placer County deer. I think Placer County deer are probably the happiest deer on the planet, you know. Placer County deer are like the 1% of the deer world. They, um, they wander through my yard. You know, they munch on the plants that I've labored to grow. They take a long drink out of the pond. They, they lay in the shade. These Placer County deer are living the life, don't you think? That's not the image that we're supposed to have in mind as we read this. You've got to imagine a, a deer in the arid climate of Israel where the streams are mostly ephemeral. They only flow when it rains and then they dry up and so deer have to search for water. And the, and the psalmist is saying, this is how I feel spiritually. I'm thirsty. It's been too long since I've had a good long drink of God's presence. One thing we should point out, by the way, is this is not a psalm of confession. There's a lot of great psalms of confession in the Bible. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. But there's no indication in Psalm 42 that the psalmist is having a hard time because he's sinned. He's just having a hard time because that's how it goes sometimes. It's not how it was supposed to be. Remember in the Garden of Eden, there was a river that watered the garden. It was large enough to divide into four rivers. And so that was an environment where you never panted for the water brooks. But after the fall, we sometimes find ourselves, as it says in Psalm 63, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, sometimes we're thirsty because 
we haven't cracked open the Bible in a while. You know, we haven't, we've neglected our prayers. We haven't been coming to church. That's probably most often the case is one of those things. But sometimes we're doing all of those things and we're still thirsty and we don't know why. When we studied Psalm 1, remember, it says that uh, the person who delights in God's word is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. But what if the stream dries up? See, that's kind of what the psalmist is experiencing. Verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Notice he's not thirsty for the comforts of religion, but for the living God. Is that what we really want? I mean, honestly, do we want what God can do for us or do we want God? Because only if you want God himself do you pray these words, when shall I come and appear before God? It reminds me of Job. Remember in the midst of his suffering, he was constantly requesting an appearance before God. And his friends were convinced that he, his suffering was the result of some guilt of his. And Job was like, well, fine, then, then let me have my audience with God. Let me stand before God. Job 13.3, but I would speak to the Almighty, Job says, and I desire to argue with God. Job 23.3, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. That sounds so presumptuous of Job, doesn't it? And it is. He thinks that he can argue with God, and God's going to rebuke him for that in the end. But God is also going to have mercy on Job and bless him. Why? Because he's doing what we're supposed to do with our questions and our frustrations and our hurts. He's taking it directly to God. He's not complaining about God. He's complaining to God. Verse 3 in our psalm. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Sometimes I wonder, is that his enemies that are saying that, or is that his tears that are saying that? Where is your God? Here's another example of the powerful images that the Psalms evoke. He could have said, I've been really sad. <laughs> that would not only be not very poetic, it also wouldn't say as much. My tears have been my food day and night. That implies he hasn't been sleeping, he hasn't been eating, right? He's consumed with his grief. A friend gave me a book after Joel died called Lament for a Son. And it was written by a professor who lost his son in a climbing accident. And um, it was helpful. It was short, which is important when you're grieving because it's hard to read very much. And it was very honest. One of the lines in that book that stayed with me is, he says, sorrow is no longer the islands but the sea. Um, so he writes that before losing his son, his sort of fundamental emotion was happiness. And like all of us, there were moments of uh, occasional sadnesses, but those were like islands in a sea of happiness. But when he lost his son, that was reversed, that reality. And, and now his fundamental emotion is sorrow. 
And there are these little islands of happiness. But he never gets to stay there very long. Uh, Sorrow is no longer the islands, but the sea. Yeah, I think that's, that's just exactly how it feels. You look out at this ocean of sorrow, and your faith tells you that beyond the horizon, there's land. But you don't know that you'll ever reach it. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been at a place where sorrow is the sea, where your tears are your food day and night. Um, And maybe you're there now. What do we do about it? Verse 4. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. Here's another image related to thirst. I pour out my soul within me. For a Jew of that time, this language would have reminded them of the temple. Among the many sacrifices in the temple, there was something called a drink offering. With a drink offering, you would take your best wine to the temple, and the priest would pour it out before the altar. Paul alludes to this sacrifice a couple times in the New Testament. He writes to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm pouring out my life in sacrifice. The psalmist is saying, I'm pouring out my soul in sacrifice. See, it reminds you of Hannah's experience. Remember the, uh, the beginning of our First Samuel series, we were introduced to Hannah. Hannah was a barren woman who was praying fervently that God would give her a child. And the priest sees her praying and he thinks she's drunk. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Hannah's saying, I'm not drinking anything. I'm, I'm pouring something out. I'm pouring out a sacrifice to my God. And this, I think, is what it means to pray a psalm of lament. Not just to recite the words in a mechanical way. It is to pour out your emotion to your God. Which is hard for some of us to do. My daughter Julie was 19 uh, when her sister passed. And I remember her telling me that she'd never seen me cry before. Which I'm not proud of. I think there's, there's probably something wrong with you if you don't cry in front of your kid for 19 years. Uh, but now I weep so easily. You know, it just pours out of me. And I can offer those tears to God. See, another psalm says that he stores our tears in his bottle. So they're not wasted. We pour them out to him. Verse 4. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving. A multitude-keeping festival. So first the feeling of thirst is evoked, and here it's the feeling of exile. So the psalmist, he has these sweet memories of going to the temple, to the house of God. You know, the Israelites were required to go to the temple three times a year for these various festivals. And, and so during that time of year, the, the roads would be flooded with pilgrims who were going up to Jerusalem. 
And what we need to understand is that these were holidays. You know, the word holiday comes from holy day. And in our minds, those seem like two very different things. You know, a holiday is, is relaxing and it's fun. It's a party. But a holy day, I mean, that seems kind of somber and boring. But for the Israelites, those two ideas converged. The, the, the festivals were, um, you know, were joyful. It, it was a reunion with family and friends. It was their vacation every year. It was a holy day and a holiday. But now, for some reason that we're not told, the psalmist can't participate. So he's experiencing this kind of exile. Verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Psalms are so honest, aren't they? And they tell us that it's okay for us to be honest in our prayers. It's okay to be struggling. It's okay to be depressed. But one thing it's not okay to be is in despair. There's one emotion that I shouldn't be feeling as a believer in God. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? See, as important as it is to be honest, it's important to be honest about this too. As Christians, we have no right to be hopeless. And so the psalmist is, in effect, preaching to himself, isn't he? Hey, soul, listen up, soul. Why are you in despair? That's not okay. The Apostle Paul, who knew something about suffering, in uh, his letter to the Second Corinthians, he's describing all of his hardships, and he says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Not despairing. See, we need to root out this despair. And the psalmist is struggling to do that. Verse 6, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. What is all that about? Well, the, the temple was in Jerusalem in the south. All these places that he mentions are in the north. So this is that exile that I'm talking about. He's separated from the temple, and so he feels separated from his God, and that's threatening to lead him to despair. How does he respond? Therefore, I remember you. Despair for the Christian is forgetting something that we need to remember. It's forgetting who we are in Christ. I remember you, see. This is remembering as a discipline. This isn't just letting your mind wander wherever it will and, oh, a nice thought about God comes to me. No, this, this is intentionally remembering who it is that we've put our trust in. This is remembering even when I feel distant. And this is why, by the way, it's so important to, preach the song, to, to pray the Psalms. Because maybe you noticed if you read through the, all the Psalms in that 50-day period, but several of them, the psalmist recounts the history of his people, right? He talks about how God brought them out of Egypt and how he provided for them in, in the uh, wilderness. And so when we pray the psalms, it reminds us of our spiritual history. 
This is why it's also so important to come to church even when and especially when we're struggling to remember him. Right? We share communion because Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. And I think when we start spinning into depression, um, we can tend to become sort of self-focused. And this feeling of exile can be sort of self-imposed. You know, uh, we're struggling, and so we separate ourselves. And then we feel separated, and so we start struggling even more. It's this vicious cycle. But getting together with your brothers and sisters to remember the Lord can break us out of that cycle. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. So the psalmist doesn't mind mixing his metaphors, does he? He he starts with a thirsty deer in the desert, and now he's drowning in the ocean. His language in verse 5 sort of anticipates this image. He said, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? The old King James has that, why are you disquieted within me? It's a word that the Bible often uses to describe the sea. A stormy sea is disquieted. And why is it disquieted? Notice that the psalmist is pointing the finger at God. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. In other words, he raises the issue of the sovereignty of God. You know, when you're suffering, it's easy to have a sort of ugly caricature of God's sovereignty in your mind. I grew up with a swimming pool in my backyard. And one of the things I enjoyed doing as a kid was throwing animals in the pool. So I'd catch a lizard, I'd throw him in the pool. Catch a snake, throw him in the pool. My cat would wander by. I'd throw him in the pool. Um, and then the lizard, the lizard would make his way to the side and start to climb out, and I'd pick him up and I'd throw him back out in the center of the pool. And eventually, he'd start moving slower and stop moving and start sinking, and then I'd scoop him out and, and put him out of the pool. I may have been sort of a disturbed child. I don't know, but I, just, I remember I just enjoyed doing that. And I, I think... Um, When we're struggling, when we're drowning spiritually, it can be tempting to think that God is like that, like he's just flicking us out into the pool because he enjoys watching us suffer. It's like how Shakespeare has one of his characters talk in King Lear. He says, As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Have you ever felt that way? In the book I mentioned earlier, Lament for a Son, the author's son had died in a climbing accident, and somebody gave him a book that another father had written whose son had died in a similar accident, and that author says that God shook the mountain. His son died because God shook the mountain. And I remember that really struck me. At first I thought, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, his son was engaged in a risky activity. He had an accident and he died. That's a terrible tragedy, but why is he blaming God? I mean, it seemed like a father whose mind was a little bit deranged from grief, you know. 
But as I thought more about it, I think I see his point. Theologians talk about the active will and the passive will of God. The active will of God are things that he makes happen. The passive will of God are things that he allows to happen. Everything that happens is one of the two. So when the author says that God shook the mountain and that's why his son died, he's saying that his son's death was the active will of God. I might quibble with that and say, no, I think it's the passive will of God. But in the end, does it really matter? Either way, nothing happens to us that doesn't first pass through the hands of God. That's what sovereignty means. Now, if you believe in a God who's like a wanton boy killing flies, then his sovereignty is a horrifying thought. But the psalmist doesn't believe in that God because he's thirsting for his God, right? He wants to come and appear before him. He remembers the joy of his presence. The psalmist is apparently convinced of both the fundamental goodness of God and God's complicity in his suffering. Those are so hard for us to hold in our minds. And this is a mystery, right? This is difficult. But I've found there really is a profound comfort in knowing that God has sent the waves that are crashing down on me. The God who was willing to suffer for me can be trusted when he asks me to suffer. You know, it reminds me of the prophet Jonah. Jonah had no doubt that the storm in his life was sent by God, right? Jonah, of course, was in a storm because of his disobedience, which is sometimes the case for us and sometimes not. But in any case, Job is a great example of how to use the Psalms of Lament in your prayers. Chapter 1 of Jonah is, among other things, a great picture of depression. Jonah is running from God, remember? And the way it's described is interesting. It says he goes down to Joppa on the sea, and then he goes down into the hold of the ship, then he's thrown overboard, swallowed by the whale, and he goes down to the bottom of the ocean, to the roots of the mountains, is how he puts it. Job is as low as he can be, and what does he do? He prays. And his prayer is very interesting because he takes pieces from all of these psalms of lament. Jonah 2.2, 2, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. He's taking phrases from Psalm 18, Psalm 69, Psalm 42. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. See, Jonah is taking the language from all these psalms, and he's making it his own. Verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Here are some of the same images that Psalm 42 evokes. Jonah is exiled from God. He's drowning. What does he do? He remembers the Lord. And his prayer bridges the distance that this exile has caused. His prayer comes into God's temple. And only then, after he prays, does he find himself on dry land. God cast him into the sea and God saved him when he prayed. Psalm 42.8 
The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. Ah, here at last is some progress, right? He, as he prays, he's beginning to feel some comfort and, and some confidence. Earlier he had prayed that his tears had been his food day and night. Now he says that day is bringing God's loving kindness and night is bringing a song. So he's making progress. But you'll notice as you read through the psalm, it's not a linear progress. It's not like he starts low and then he just steadily gets better and better. No, there's peaks and there's valleys like the depression that we all experience. There, this, the suffering comes in waves, right? The very next verse, he's at a low point again. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And so it's time to preach to himself again. And he returns to that same refrain, verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. I love that phrase, the help of my countenance. The lifter of my head is how another psalmist puts it. God is not just there for the big things. He's not just there to save our souls, right? He's there to help our countenance. Only by God's help can we smile. Only by God's help can we ever be happy, see? So there's three main images evoked in this psalm. Thirst, exile, and drowning. And I see three responses for the believer. Pour out your heart. Remember him. And preach to yourself. It really is a a powerful prayer. Let me just close, uh, as we often do, with with Jesus. You might ask yourself, well, why should we pray these Old Testament prayers? I mean, we have a hope that they didn't fully understand. We know Jesus. Well, like with all of the Old Testament, the Psalms point us to Jesus. Jesus was no stranger to lament. He experienced all of these emotions for our sake. Jesus understood thirst. That was one of his cries from the cross was just that, right? I am thirsty. Jesus understood exile. Why have you forgotten me? The psalmist prays. One of Jesus' cries from the cross was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus hangs on the cross, he hears the passers-by taunting him, just like the psalmist, where is your God? So Jesus understood this lament. Jesus lived this lament. But Jesus also knew something that the psalmist didn't know. Jesus knows that he's the answer to the lament. For the thirsty, he's the living water. As he tells the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. For the exile, Jesus is the way home. As Paul puts it in Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And for those drowning in stormy seas, 
Jesus is the only one with the authority to calm those seas. Remember Jesus in the boat with his disciples. Storm comes up. Tells us in Mark 4, And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. So as Christians, we're not immune to lament. We still get spiritually thirsty. We still feel the distance of exile, and we still feel like we're drowning sometimes. But we know where to go, don't we? The language of the Psalms can give us words to pray that will lead us to Jesus. And so as John closes with one more song, when I ask the prayer team to come on up, if you'd like prayer for any reason, it would be an honor to pray with you. So please feel free to come and receive prayer. God bless you.